Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome to another edition of our Memory Lane podcast on the DK Pittsburgh Sports Podcasting Network. And we've got a tremendous guest for you today, Paul Steigerwald, who spent more than 30 years as a Penguins play-by-play man. Just a really great guy and a tremendous hockey play-by-play guy. Uh, Paul, I really appreciate you taking a few minutes to join me, buddy. How's everything going with you? Good, Corey. I miss those days at Altoona. That was a fun time up there. You know, a little scary for me. I, you know, wasn't sure I could call baseball. I'm still not sure I can, but I had a good time doing it and uh, met a lot of great people like you and uh, really miss those days, actually. Well, I can attest to uh, Steige's determination to be as good as he possibly can. And we'll, we'll get to that here in a little bit, what he what he did in Altoona with the curve a number of years ago. You You spent the better part of your career, Paul. Covering games played by pretty much all your career played by Marilyn Mew and Sidney <laughs> Crosby. I mean, just that component alone that you span both of those unbelievable careers. How much do you look back on your career and say, wow, that was truly special? Well, you know, it's, it's really almost not even, you know, fair. I mean, but that goes for all the people who've been associated with hockey in Pittsburgh over the last, you know, 30 years uh, or longer, really. Uh, you know, I started with the Penguins in 1980, you know, so there were some tough times and we went through quite of those even, even after Mario arrived. But when Mario got here in 84, that's when things started to really turn. But, you know, I think when you look back on it, what I, what stands out to me is just that, you know, the Penguins were longing for a great player to get us out of the wilderness. And we ended up with two, three, four of the greatest players of all time. <laughs> over that span. Like, it's not just Mario and Sid. It's Mary Auger and Evgeny Malkin, you know? And then the supporting cast, which you would think would be kind of just regular gamers like, you know, Joey Mullen and the great players that have come through Pittsburgh. It's unbelievable. Some of the most entertaining players, too, of all time, like Alexei Kovalev. And it's just been unreal. I mean, it's almost like there's something in the water here in Pittsburgh. We really got fortunate. It wasn't always that way for the Penguins, but... uh you know, I got here at the right when the right people came in to make sure that the future was better than the past. And it started, I think, with Eddie Johnston coming in and making the decision to hang on to draft picks. And then he timed it perfectly to kind of tank in 83, 84 to get Mario Lemieux and the rest is history. All right. So let's go back to the beginning of your career when you were first hired by the Penguins uh, as a young whippersnapper. And what was your what was your job? What was your function before you uh, became a broadcaster? 
Well, in the late 70s, I sold radio time uh, for a couple of radio stations, and I decided it wasn't for me, and I had always had this longing to call hockey games, and my brother John had done baseball, and he was already working in television in Pittsburgh, so I still felt that it was something I could do on the air that I would really like. So I um, sent tapes around to minor league hockey teams. I had recorded myself in the Civic Arena balcony at a couple of games, so I had a tape, and... uh, in the process of you know looking for a job in the minor leagues, I called a marketing director of the Penguins, a guy named Don LaRose, a Canadian fellow who uh, you know was uh, about 48 years old at the time and had a lot of experience in, in the World Hockey Association and some in the NHL with the Penguins. And he asked me, like, what are, you, what are you doing now or what have you done? And I told him I sold radio time, blah, blah. And he didn't really say much about it. But I finally got a job right up the road from you, Corey, in, in Johnstown. So I, I went to work for the Johnstown Red Wings in 79-80. And while I was doing that, Don LaRose was, like, looking into my background. And uh, he, you know, talked to a couple of people in the ad agency business who he dealt with with the Penguins and asked them about me. And he got a good report on me, which was nice. And so he calls me in March of that year, like, so March of 1980. He gives me a call and says, I want you to come work for the Penguins. So I, you know, I was like out of the blue. I, I said, okay. I said, I really like to be a broadcaster, but he goes, well, you know, you come here and work in marketing. You can do some stuff on the air, you know, blah, blah, blah. So I, I went to Pittsburgh and I, I, I started my job with the Penguins, uh, you know, 40, uh, three years ago this month. All right. And, uh, so, but let me backtrack just a minute because you were in Johnstown in 79. Now this is a couple of years after Slapshot. So I got to know. What's it like working for the Johnstown hockey team in in and around the slap shot era? Well, you you might be uh, interested to know that because it was uh, the Eastern Hockey League, they weren't called the Chiefs. They were the Red Wings. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were owned by the Detroit Red Wings. There seemed to be a little bit of a disconnect from the past. As much as that may sound ridiculous, because it was only a few years there was kind of like this feeling that like that was the good old days. I, I know that sounds ridiculous, but people talked about the chiefs and the, the slap shot era, you know, uh, almost in a, in a, in a nostalgic way. So uh, there wasn't really a lot of a connection with the Red Wings to that movie or anything like that. Other than obviously we were playing our games at the, at the Johnstown war Memorial. Uh, you know, there was still the, thought that you know in that level of hockey there could be fights and some crazy stuff that went on but you know we we had like a little bit i would say much more cleaner version of hockey uh by then you know in the eastern hockey league than we had had previously so to answer your question i i I didn't really feel like a real sense of connection to Slapshot when i got there it felt like more i was connected to you know the detroit red wings and you know uh more about the Eastern Hockey League, a six-team league, and what were we going to accomplish as a team in Johnstown that year? That, that's And I might add that I worked for the radio station, and I worked with Tim Rigby, and we had a blast. You know, like we hung out every day. Tim was doing sports on the radio. Of course, he became a, kind of a legend in Johnstown. But uh, so, so that's what I remember about that, those days was kind of the – the early days of getting into the radio and calling games and traveling with the team on the bus and all those things, it really wasn't a whole lot about slap shot at that point. But you did your time in the minor leagues as well. And uh, so then you get hired by the Penguins for, for marketing. What do you do in those first handful of years before you get on the air? Well, 
Don LaRose hired me. And so I went there to do marketing. And then about a month into um, our job, uh, he, he decided to leave and take job as the general manager at the Meadows racetrack. So I became the marketing director at the age of 26. So they paid me, uh, as I remember, 18000 a year. They gave me a company car and seats of the games. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so I was like in charge of some, you know, a, a very small staff. We had a very few people working for the organization back then. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead, take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey man, but, eighteen grand and a company car in nineteen eighty and free hockey tickets. You're living pretty freaking large yeah, there, buddy. Yeah, I was living large, and then you know these offices at the Civic Arena that had been there since the seventies with various ownerships coming through. They had these big high back leather chairs, you know, and I looked like <laughs> I was about eighteen years old, Corey. You know, and I'm I'm sitting in this big chair in my office like a big shot. You know what I mean? And I know people would come and call on me to try to sell me stuff. You know, like stuff to give away at the games or, you know, stuff just to, uh, you know, market, you know, their, their little uh, trinkets and what have you, you know, uh, and, and I would, you know, take those calls. And, and then I had to, I had to concern myself with the gold magazine, the program with, uh, with ticketing. I dealt with the ticket office for that mostly a group sales, um, you know, all the things that you're, you're involved in at that time. And what I mostly liked was the advertising stuff, our marketing campaigns. I got into that a little bit because I wanted to make sure that, my big thing back then was to get the players involved. I felt like the Penguins never really sold their players much. You know, they would, they would try to sell tickets, but they didn't really involve their players in their ads or anything like that. So I really started to make sure we did a lot of that. And it was good that I did because ultimately we did have some players who were very marketable. I mean, we got Mario Lemieux. And so we already had kind of a template for how to use the players in our ads and, and, uh, and sell the team in that way to the you know, personalities. And in fact, we came up with the boys winner campaign back then um that really was kind of a, a you know a derivative of that whole philosophy of wanting to get the players involved in our advertising so that's probably the biggest stamp i made in terms of our, our marketing but at that time i was also doing intermissions on the radio which was 
you know, kind of common in the minor leagues, but not in the NHL. A lot of times there was a division between marketing and, and broadcasting, you know, and, and one of the neat things about, you know, being in marketing and also in broadcasting was that the broadcasting intermissions that I was doing and the interviews I was doing with players, that gave me a connection to the team, right? So I was able to then develop relationships with the players mm -hmm. that helped me, that helped me in my marketing capacity because, you know, there was always this division of like, you know, no one in marketing ever knew a player, you know, well, I was different than I was kind of like a conduit between the team and the marketing, which we needed at that time because we needed everything we could do, you know, to sell the team and to sell the game. And I really believe that if we could, uh, you know, get a good team on the ice, that, that hockey would explode in Pittsburgh because I always felt that it had the appeal of football, you know, with the physicality, the speed of the game. I, I, there was, there was, I never doubted for a minute that hockey could be huge in Pittsburgh if we had a great team, in which ultimately we did. Staggy, that's great. That's a great segue to what I was going to – because ultimately the Penguins became fantastic. But not only did you get to see the side in the early 80s when they weren't all that good, you're the marketing guy. You've got to sell this stuff. And then you, <laughs> then, then you get Mario, and, and if the timeline's correct, you were still the marketing guy his rookie season, and then you took over play-by-play -play at 85. How did everything change once that took place? Well, you know, I, I, uh, I had people put it above me. You know, there were layers of management that came in above me. Like they brought in Tom Rooney of the famous Rooney family. Uh, he had been in marketing in the ad agency business, and the, uh, the Bartolo Corporation that owned the team knew that they could not survive unless they had control of the arena. So they were able to work that out. So we developed a, a, a company called Civic Arena Corporation Advertising, uh, CAC Advertising. And then there was CAC Productions. We you know, basically did the, the broadcast. We did them all in-house. You know, we, we, we worked deals out with Channel 53 for a while and then, and then ultimately KDKA-TV. And then we had our radio deals too, right? So, so you know, everything went in-house. We had our own in-house ad agency, and these people were above me. So I had less and less responsibilities as, as they added more and more staff, right? So I still had a role to play, but, uh, but it, my role started to, to drift more towards the, ad, the uh, broadcasting. And then I, you know, Mike Lang and I had worked together on TV for uh, a season, but then ultimately Bill Strong, who was in charge of broadcasting and, and uh, sponsorship sales, he decided to put me on the radio all the time and for every game. And we simulcast back then with Mike Lang. So that my first year was uh, doing all the games was 85, 86. And uh, that's when I started traveling with the team and doing color on TV with Mike Lang. And I, you know, to be honest with you, Corey, I never felt, I felt like I was miscast, but I, I, I wasn't about to turn down the opportunity, but I always felt like doing color, not so much uh, at that time. It was a little bit less of a, uh, of a reach, but, you know, today you could never have a guy who didn't play in the NHL. Well, you could have women who didn't play in the NHL now, but you couldn't have men who played, uh, didn't play in the NHL doing color on TV these days. It just wouldn't happen. I mean, it's just not the way it works. So that job goes to somebody who played the game, right? And, uh, I mean, I played at the high school level and things like that. So I felt miscast a bit, but uh, it lasted 15 years with Mike Lang, so I'm not complaining. And I, I saw a lot of great hockey games and a lot of great moments, including I was able to be the color analyst when we won the Cups in 91 and 92 before the networks took all the games and knocked all the local guys out of TV. I was able to do that. So that's, that's one of my you know, blessings, I think, throughout my career. And so kind of like the Steelers in the, in the early 70s, the franchise had not had any success. And then, boom, the 70s, they're phenomenal. 
The Penguins had not had a lot of success for a lot of years, and then boom, they're phenomenal. And you're the broadcaster. You're, you've got a first-hand account of history for all of this stuff. The, the Cups, the Mario, Sid, uh, the great players. I'll ask you about Mike Lang in a second. But what was that like for a young, what are you, 35, 38 years old at the time? What, what is that like for you to go through that experience? Well, it was amazing. I mean, I was really fortunate, you know, because I, I loved hockey and I, I, I loved what I was doing for a living. And, you know, I got lucky. I mean, Mario came in. I picked him up at the airport. First time he came to Pittsburgh, I went to the airport and got him. So the first person he met, you know, associated with the Penguins, other than the people he had met, you know, at the draft and on the hockey side was me, you know. So I was really fortunate. to Wait a second. What was that conversation like? Well, it was him and his dad and his agent, right? He didn't say much. I mean, his dad couldn't speak English at all. His agent was a guy named Bob Perno, who was bilingual from Montreal. And Mario had very, very little to say. You know, he just basically gestured with his eyebrows and his eyes and nodding of his head, you know. But he rode in the back seat of this town car from the airport to town. And as we approached the tunnel, I said, hey, where do you see this view when you come through the tunnel? I kind of prepared him for it. And so when we came through the tunnel and he saw the city, he was like, he opened his eyes big. He gave me the nod, like, yeah, you know, nod of approval. And uh, so it was pretty cool. I have a very, very vivid memory of him sitting in the back seat with these huge hands. Like he looked like a, like a, you know how a puppy has real big hands. You know, it's like that's pause. That's what it looked like. His hands were like huge man man hands, but he still looked like a, an eighteen year old kid. You know, it was amazing, and uh, he was just like prince. You know, I felt like I, I had a prince riding in the back seat. He was royal. He turned out to be the king of hockey in Pittsburgh, but at that time he was a prince. And I'm telling you, he had that look of royalty about him. Now, was this daytime or nighttime when you're going through the tunnel to it the was, city? Uh, we picked them up. I picked them up at about uh, 5.30 or 6, so the sun was still shining. It was in June, so, you know, there was, uh, it was you know, still long days. So it was sunny when we came through the tunnel. I'll tell you, it's, there's nothing more beautiful than going through the tunnel at night and seeing seeing. Downtown. Yeah, that's pretty cool, too. But I'll tell you, it was pretty cool coming through that tunnel on a sunny summer afternoon with him. That was I'm, a, I'm a sure. great memory. So those early years, as, as you're learning your craft and, and Mario's taking the world by storm, how did you how did you perfect it and try to work on what you were doing as a broadcaster during those years? Well, I was very hard on myself. You know, I wanted to do well and I would listen to tapes of the games and, you know, and watch, you know, video and, you know, listen to myself. It'd usually cringe, but, um, you know, I, I think most of the time I was just kind of, kind of going with the flow and, and listen to what Mike told, told me to do. You know, Mike Lang would give me advice and, and, uh, you know, sometimes he made me uncomfortable on the air because he would, if I said something and he would, he didn't really have any qualms about kind of correcting me or making me feel like I said something dumb sometimes, but, you know, that's all part of kind of, you know, growing up, not only as a person, but also in a professional way. Uh, sometimes you got to, you know, take your take your lip lumps, you know, and I, I kind of felt like, to be honest with you, uh, we were kind of a uh, forced marriage, if you will. I mean, I was put in there and, you know, for, for Mike Lang being the Hall of Famer that he is and one of the great broadcasters of all time, to be fair, uh, it probably wouldn't have been a bad thing if he had been paired up with uh you know, a, a hockey player with, of stature who could have been a fantastic analyst at that time, but instead he was stuck with me. So, I mean, there was a little bit of that, like a little bit like I was miscast or, you know, like I was in over my head. There was a lot of that. But as time went on, you know, Mike and I got better. And I think by the time we got to the mid-90s, I, I think we kind of peaked right at the end of my time as a color analyst regularly with him. And that was in 95, 96 when the Penguins had that quadruple overtime game with Peter Nedved, I was starting to really get pretty good at my job. And, uh, you know, and then, and then, uh, they finally broke up the simulcast 
when uh, KBL came in and Bill Craig, uh, they came in and bought the rights when Howard Baldwin was the owner and they decided to split the radio and TV, no more simulcast. So they went out and got a guy named Doug McLeod. Then they got Matt McConnell and all that time. I wanted that job. I wanted to, you know, to, to get out of feeling that way as a color analyst and a dinosaur. I wanted to get my own play by play gig, but I never had any, any notion whatsoever that I would supplant Mike Lang on television. That was one of the dumber decisions ever made by the Penguins organization was to put me on TV, in my opinion, at the expense of Mike Lang. Uh, I've never, never felt that it was a good idea, but what was I going to do? I took the job. Uh, they paid me handsomely, most money I've ever made in my life. I earned every extra dollar because it wasn't always fun being scrutinized and compared to Mike Lang. So there were a lot of, you know, like, like negative forces at work that I had to overcome. I think it's all, you know, lollipops and roses, but it wasn't. You know, there, there were, there were, there were some professional, jealousy involved and some things that went down that were uncomfortable and that's just unfortunate but sometimes management makes decisions and they don't really think them through and they don't really realize what it is they're actually doing not so much uh to the people that are involved but the fans i mean the fans wanted something different than what they got and that's not right Looking back on all of it these years later, um, why why did they make that decision, and how, how did that impact your relationship with Mike then, and what's your relationship with like Mike like now? Well, you know, this is kind of a touchy subject, and I and I'm happy to talk about it. But I think if you remember, Corey, I came to Altoona and did baseball during that lockout, and when I came, I was still doing radio for the Penguins, mm-hmm. and when I left Al- and when I, and when I left that first Altoona season, uh, that summer the Penguins got Sidney Crosby in the lottery. And, and, uh, I went back to Pittsburgh and I did radio for one more year. And then Mike had some issues with, with man, with, uh, with, you know, Fox, okay. Fox sports, they were issues that he had, had nothing to do with me. Okay. It was all money and it was, you know, pretty stupid, but it was, he had an agent who, who, you know, was, was kind of inter- interceding there and the agent was playing, was being tough. And, and, uh, Mike, Mike wasn't getting along great with uh, one of the producers at Fox sports net. And that's really, how it, how it kind of turned into this situation where the Penguins were finishing low in the standings, the ratings were low, and the new guys who came in in charge at, at, at Fox Sports, you know, didn't really have a real feel for the, for the legendary aspect of Mike Lang and, and they weren't in, they had, were out of touch in terms of what the fans really would have wanted. And, uh, so they just decided to fire him. They, they asked me to take the job, you know, and it was, a uh, you know, if I ever write a book, I, you know, I could give you all the details of how they offered me the job, but, you know, essentially, uh, you know, I, I, I knew that Mike had a problem with, with, with Fox Sports Net and the company, and they owned the rights to almost every NHL team in the United States. So he was going to have a problem getting a TV job, even if he wanted one somewhere else, because it was the same people that he had to deal with. So I, I said to Mario, you got you got to offer him the radio job, you know? And, uh, so they did, and Mike waited a while before he finally accepted it. And I told Mike, you know, listen, Mike, Sidney Crosby's here. He's going to win a Stanley Cup. He ended up winning three, okay? And uh, I said, you're, all your calls are going to be as legendary as ever because you're going to be doing all the games. They're going to take you off the air, you know, you know, when, when the finals come, unless you end up back on the radio, which if I would have been in charge, they, he would have, uh, if that would have come to that. But it didn't because he ended up just taking the radio gig and he stayed on doing the radio for all those years. And I know he was really mad about all the money he lost. And I don't blame him, okay? I don't blame him one bit. So I don't, 
I don't take it personally at all. I, I just look at it now in retrospect as, you know, management, business, the way people operate in this world, the corporate world. Uh, sometimes people get moved around like chess pieces and the people who are moving them around don't always know what they're doing. That's good stuff. I, I appreciate your candor with all that. I, I, I've covered the Altoona Curve, the AA affiliate of the Pirates, since 1999. Steige came in in 05 and uh, was the broadcaster that season. One of my favorite memories of my time covering the Curve, we were in the clubhouse uh, in the afternoon of the NA, NF, NHL draft lottery. And <laughs> you, you will remember all the particulars better than I, but the particular I remember is Paul Steigerwald losing his freaking mind <laughs> when the Penguins got the number one pick and everybody knew it was going to be Sidney Crosby. I remember there was a there was a jump. I'm not sure the vertical leap was real high, but you jumped up and down and it was like a, a like a hooray kind of thing. You knew you you knew you had already been covering Mario for all these years. You knew what Sid's uh pros- possibilities were. Do you remember that moment and, and just how impactful yeah, that I draft lottery was? There was a camera in the in the room at the time too. Uh, it was uh, Channel Six, I think. I uh, was there, and uh, I was sitting on a couch. And all these Latin ball players are sitting in there, and they're going, "What the hell was this guy getting all excited about?" I'm dancing around the clubhouse because the Penguins got Sidney Crosby, and they captured it on 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 video. There's a video out there somewhere of me dancing around, happily uh, responding to what I had just seen on television. So. Yeah, it was a big deal, and I knew that it, you know, I didn't know exactly what it was going to mean, okay? Because you didn't know how great Sydney was. Because in those days, you know, the, the hype was always something you had to be a little bit skeptical of. You know, I wasn't sure if he was really as great as they were saying. Wasn't after all, I had seen the greatest player in the world play, you know, for his entire career, and I was like, okay, well, how great is he really? But it turns out, you know, uh, he was every bit he was uh, and more that he was advertised to be. So it turned out to be a tremendous change in the landscape of Pittsburgh. I don't know if the Penguins would still exist, really, uh, if not for Sidney Crosby coming. When Mario, you know, he just, everything he touched turned to gold. He ended up living in Mario's house. Uh, it's one of the greatest stories of all time. I mean, it's just amazing, and it just changed the whole fortunes of hockey in Pittsburgh. And it really, you know, I, I call it the golden era of hockey in Pittsburgh. Uh, it started with, really, I mean, it probably started with Mario, but but, but this this more recent golden era of hockey began with, the Penguins winning that lottery, getting Sid, winning a cup within only two years of his uh, rookie season, uh, three years, and then, uh, you know, having uh, all these great moments since, you know, where, where you've had Sid basically win two more cups and the Penguins getting a new arena and the parades in downtown Pittsburgh and this entire new generation of hockey fans who grew up watching these young, great hockey players. I mean, it's just really, really a storybook tale. And uh, to be a part of it has just been been awesome, um, you know, for a couple reasons. Number one, when you're a young marketing director, as I was, you have this vision. You know, I, I'd love to see hockey get big in Pittsburgh. I really had a passion for, like, you know, spreading the, the word, you know, converting people to be hockey fans. And for all these things to happen, as I have been, you know, monitoring the, the you know, the growth and the, and the progress of hockey in Pittsburgh, to me, it's extremely heartwarming because I had... I'm not going to say a vision, but I definitely had, uh, you know, a dream that, that, that this would happen. And it's a dream come true. It really is. Were you able to have a good personal relationship with, with Mario and Sid over time throughout all the years? Yeah, it's a professional relationship. I never, I mean, I've been to Mario's house and I've hung out with him a little bit, you know, on the road a couple of times, you know, just like really 
really kind of random things, but you know, Mario, I'm not a golfer. I think if I had played the game golf, uh, well, I probably would be tighter with Mario because I would have played, you know, golf with him more or something like that if I had been good, but I wasn't. So I didn't have a real affinity for, for the stuff that he loved to do when he wasn't on the ice. And then of course, when you're working in the broadcasting business, you know, I was a journalist. I worked at KDK TV for 10 years. Don't forget during this time too. And I was involved in covering the bankruptcy when Mario got the team out of bankruptcy. I was working for the team and covering that story. It was a, well, I, I, I mean, nobody walked the fine line of conflict of interest more than I did, Corey, over the years. It's ridiculous. I became a master at it. Okay. Uh, like a tightrope guy. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm better in those, the, 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 the flying Walendas, okay. <laughs> at, at, at walking that tightrope. So that was a big, big part of, uh, who I was for a long time is that we're in different hats. And, uh, so it was kind of hard for me to, Big buddy, be buddy, buddy with the players. And I never wanted to be anyway. I was, I learned at an early age, uh, early time in my career with the Penguins that you don't fraternize with the players. That was just a rule in hockey. It's changed a lot. There's a lot more access to players now. All the broadcasters have the players' uh, cell numbers. They text them. I never did any of that stuff. I had no personal relationships with players for, for 25, 30 years. At the end of your broadcast, I believe 2017 was your final year, and then you transitioned into a front office role with the Penguins. How, how did all that play out? Were, were you were you ready to go? Was was that a mutual decision? Something you were comfortable with? And and as you look back on it, a handful of years later, how 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 did that whole situation play out for you personally? I was only ready for it, Corey, in the sense that I knew it was coming, uh, so I had to kind of accept it. So I you know I had to I had to I'll use the word embrace it. Okay, because I knew that, first of all, the clock was ticking on my TV career just because of the the nature of the business, number one, and also the people I was working for. I could I just sensed that the guy who I worked for didn't like me much. And I so I knew uh, that he was, you know, and then I heard caught wind that, you know, some other people in the Penguins organization weren't real thrilled with me either. So I knew that, that my days were numbered. I, I sensed it coming. So when it did, I was willing to kind of accept it in a in a professional and manly way but I didn't like it. I mean, I, you know, I, I would have preferred to stay on doing TV. It was a great, great career. I lost, you know, I mean, I probably had a few more years of making good money in me, but I, you know, they, they, uh, they, but, but, but on the other, by the same token, Mario took care of me. He was the owner of the team. He said, you know, you're not going to just kick the guy to the curb. You got to bring him into the organization, which they, which he did. So I'm forever grateful to Mario for that. So, you know, so, so I'm not complaining. I'm just telling you with the reality of the situation, I wasn't thrilled with it. I didn't want it to end when it did. But also, I was willing to accept that maybe uh, that's the way things go in life. And, um, you know, things happen for a reason. And maybe uh, it's the best thing for me in the long run. And what are you up to now, Stoggy? What are the, what have these last few years been for you? What's your day-to-day role and responsibilities at this stage? Well, now I'm, you know, I've kind of, uh, <clears throat> well, what happened was the pandemic came and they, 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 they put me on unemployment during the pandemic. So when the pandemic ended and everybody got to, be, got, you know, reinstated, they kept me on they could have, they could have locked me off. They did, they did let go of some people, but they didn't let go of me. Thank God. And they cut my salary in half. And now I'm getting social security. You know, I'm in my 69th year of life. So I feel pretty fortunate to still be able to do in the stuff that's, that I still have a passion for no different than when I was 27 years old, by the way, I feel just as excited about what I do being involved uh, in hockey as I ever did. And, you know, now I do the pre and post game shows on the radio. I do a little bit of stuff for the Penn's TV uh, occasionally they'll ask me to MC events or come and do things for the organization. So I do whatever they ask me to do. 
and I hope they'll keep asking me because I like to keep doing it for a few more years. I like doing it. It keeps me young. I like being around the team and being around the game. And I, I feel like I know the game pretty well. I feel like I, you know, I have something to offer. Um, so in that respect, you know, it's, it's, uh, still very fulfilling. Right. And, uh, you know, I make, I don't make huge money, but I make a pretty good living for where I am in life. And, uh, I feel very, very fortunate to be healthy and heart, you know, young at heart and still being, uh, asked to do things that, you know, give me that sense of uh, having uh, a feeling of relevance, you know, if you will. Charmed life and career in the in the game, though, pal. I mean, we talk about being able to watch Mario, Sid, you mentioned uh, Yager, Malkin, uh, work with these guys, see the cup championships, work with Mike Lang. At the end of the day, it's it's got to feel like a, a pretty magical, magical career you've had. It's kind of scary. I mean, when I really stop and think about it, I, you know, Corey, I've never been a guy who looks back much. Like I didn't collect memorabilia. I wish I would have. I'd probably have a couple hundred thousand dollars worth of stuff right now, if I'd have been smart enough to do that. But that's just not who I am. I was, I kind of, kind of keep my eyes, my nose pointed in the direction of the, or, you know, concentrate on the present and the future. I don't look back too much. So when I do an interview like this, a lot of the stuff that, you know, that I is kind of suppressed or things I don't think about every day, they come back rushing back to me you know so if you say a name i could tell you a story you tell, you tell me a particular game i might be able to explain you know, what i remember about it so things like that but i don't tend to do a lot of dwelling on on the past but if but when you you know when you ask me i i say yeah it almost feels like it was my destiny um you know almost like i was uh it, it wasn't my goal or, or my dream as much as it was my destiny it almost feels like somehow god just put me in this place to be able to have this career. I, you know, I grew up in, in, a, in, a, in a neighborhood in Scott Township where the GM of the Penguins lived the street below us, you know, and so we got to go to a lot of games when I was in high school uh, for free, and I got hooked on the game, and then I got hooked on hockey broadcasting, but it, it's, it's just almost like something just drove me towards this all uh, that, you know, that came from somewhere else. So I, I kind of thank God for it all. More, 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 I guess is what I'm saying. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't feel like uh, it was my goal as much as it was my destiny. Hey, that's very well said. Amazing stories. I cannot thank you enough for taking the time to share all these, Steige. Just fantastic stuff, and I really, really appreciate you going down memory lane with us, buddy. And, Corey, I want to thank you because you made me feel at home in Altoona. You were an expert on uh, on the curve at the time, and uh, you helped me out with uh, how to keep a perspective on, you know, the difference between minor league baseball and, you know, and, and major league hockey or, or baseball. And uh, I really, really enjoyed my time working with you, with all the guys in the press box there. It was a great time. And, of course, uh, you know, I, I really had a great time working with J.D. So J.D. is a brilliant guy, one of the best, smartest people I've ever met in sports. And uh, you guys were you guys were almost overqualified in a way for what you were doing, I always thought. <laughs> uh, you should have been working at the, you know, at the New York Times or something. You're a, you're a really good writer and a, and a great journalist. I appreciate that. I'll tell that to Jason Dombach as well. He's still, he's still on my radio show once a week talking pit football and basketball and stuff, Stoggy, so he still loves all that stuff. All right, well, say hi to him for me, will you? Thanks, pal. Appreciate the time, buddy. Okay, Corey, take care. Thanks so much.